Hey, what's going on? Jason Bay here. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. And this podcast is for reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings with their prospects, but absolutely hate sending hundreds of cold emails or making dozens of cold calls and getting minimal results. So if that's ever happened to you, you're definitely in the right place. Today, we're talking to Jordana Zeldin. She is the founder at Spring Training, and we're going to be digging into her disarm framework for discovery calls. Let's get to it. So one of the things that I talk about a lot is, and if you ever think about a a significant other, spouse, friend, your parents, anything like that, if you've ever been in an argument with someone and they're telling you logically that you need to do something, that could be taking a different job, being with what they think of your boyfriend or your girlfriend or any other type of life decision, and they could be saying the best stuff, right? You know that they're right, but admitting it is really hard. That position you're in right there is a really good example of, from a sales standpoint, when we always say, you know, people buy based on emotion and justify with logic. When we skip that emotional part, it doesn't matter how logical, how much it makes sense that people need to change their solution or go with you or spend more money or see the value or whatever it might be. So the key here is if we can disarm the person, because we have to understand that going into the sales call, the prospect is bringing in all of the baggage that they've had from experiences, the accumulation of experiences of probably decades of experience with salespeople, 90 plus percent of those probably being bad experiences, people not caring about them, talking too much, not being asked great questions, getting their time wasted, saying yes to something they didn't really want to say yes to, experiencing buyer, all of that kind of stuff. We have to bring that context in as a salesperson into discovery. And one thing you'll notice if you've been listening to this podcast for a while is we're starting to talk about more topics related to sales. And one of the things that I'm thinking about too, well, I know that we're going to do, I don't know exactly when, but we're going to be rebranding into Blissful Selling too. So just, just heads up. Today, I'm really excited to talk to Georgiana because the way that we met actually was uh, she was a sales coach at another company. We had connected through LinkedIn, I think, and she messaged me and said, hey, I like your podcast. And we've talked several times since then. And She's gone out and done her own thing. She's killing it right now with some other clients. And I just love her approach because her background, she comes from a theater background. And I find that people that have backgrounds that are not in sales take such a refreshing approach to sales. Because one of the things she's going to talk about how being in theater and then going into selling to people in theater or people running, you know, these kind of theaters and that sort of thing, there was some definite hurdles she had to overcome around being a salesperson which I think bleeds into a lot of what we do, even as an experienced salesperson myself, I still deal with some of that stuff. And what she's going to give us a masterclass in today, and I'm excited for you to hear, is her disarm framework. So how to properly start off a sales call so that you disarm the prospect and you can have some real conversation, because that's really what it's about. I don't know about you. If you're doing these discovery calls, is how do we get to the real stuff where we can be really as candid as possible with each other so we can skip all of the BS. So that's what we're going to talk about today. She's one of the best that I've seen at this, and it goes a little deeper than, oh, you should do an upfront contract. She's going to go into the specifics of exactly how to do this, what to say, your tonality, how to set the right intentions, all kinds of cool stuff. So I'm super excited for you to listen to this. Before we get to the episode, I want to tell you about Outbound Squad. So at the time of recording this, we're starting next week. But at the time you're listening to this, it probably will have already started. 
So we've got our first cohort started, but the whole concept is, and what I believe, is that you don't need more sales content. I know that might sound weird coming from a guy that's recording these podcasts and doing webinars and posting LinkedIn content on a daily basis. The top reps aren't in need of consuming more content. What you need help with is implementing this stuff and figuring out the right thing for you. And Outbound Squad is a community of other top sales reps. So you can't get into the community unless you're a top sales rep. You can't get in the community unless you are ambitious. And it's providing a structured environment for you to learn through courses, live coaching, and then also a badass community. So if any of that relates to you and you feel like maybe, hey, I want to level up or maybe I'm in a little bit of a sales rut or plateau, send an email to me. My email is jason at blissfulprospecting.com and just put squad in the subject line and I'll hook you up with some more information. And if you're a sales leader listening to this and you want some help with your team, send me an email as well, jason at blissfulprospecting.com. Let me know what you're dealing with and how we can help. And without further ado, let's get to the interview with Jordana. So one of the things I, I love to ask is a quick icebreaker at the beginning of every interview. And I'm curious for you, what did you eat for breakfast when you were a kid? Oh, at my mom's, I was allowed sugar cereal. So Fruit Loops, Fruity Pebbles, oh, okay. Rice Krispie Treat cereal. At my dad's, it was there oatmeal we go. or cream of wheat. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Straight up. Plain oatmeal. Nothing, oatmeal, nothing brown else. sugar and milk and cream of wheat. Yeah, okay. different different rules okay. at mom's house than dad's house. No, that's funny. The The reason I ask is that, uh, I don't know if it's a generational thing or not, but the sugary cereals is something that, I don't know, Reese's Cocoa Puffs for me was a big thing. And the amount of junk that I ate as a kid for breakfast is just like, I couldn't imagine eating like that now. It'd be crazy. Well, think about like, what was it? Cookie? What's the one that were just like literal cookies Cookie as crisps. a cereal? Cookie crisp. Yeah, it was cookie crisp or whatever the dog would say. Yeah, or like Rice Krispie Treat cereal. Rice Krispie Treats, add milk. Yeah. It's a cereal. It's crazy. Pop-Tarts as well. Man. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. It's funny to think about. Yeah, I'd love to dig into your background a little bit because most people that I talk to get into sales by accident. I'm assuming your story is maybe something very similar. Like you haven't always done sales. Like, what were you doing before you, got, before you got into sales? And how did you end up getting into doing sales? Yeah, it's such a, a weird journey in that early on in my career, when I was thinking about what I wanted to be, it was a theater director. And I, I went to college in England and I was directing these plays. And the idea was to move back to New York City and take the theater world by storm. I ended up not fulfilling the the dream of becoming a, a theater director, but I um I kind of tripped and fell into the fine art world. So I was myself a photographer and I found myself running a nonprofit arts organization and then got really excited about curating art exhibitions and helping to develop and mentor uh, emerging visual artists. So I did that for years. It's interesting, like throughout my entire career, and it's only really made sense looking back, like there's been this through line of mentorship and people development, and it first expressed itself in the art world. And, you know, now, of course, it's in coaching and sales coaching, but I fell into B2B sales when a very cool art world technology company called Artsy, who sold online exposure to galleries and helped to connect them with collectors who'd want to buy their artist's work around their world, uh, around the world, was hiring for their first B2B team. And the company itself was buzzy and venture-backed and disrupting a pretty traditional industry. And uh, I signed on, really not knowing what I was getting into. 
from a sales perspective? It sounds like it kind of married two things that you're pretty interested in, right? Like interacting with other people and like all this other stuff and then the art component to it as well. Did you have any weird issues with getting into sales, like any mental hurdles that you had to overcome? Exclusively mental hurdles. I mean, I felt Jason like embarrassed about being in sales early on. And in fact, I was very excited about the company, but I felt really conflicted about selling. And I remember not even really telling people what I did there. Like I couldn't, I think that, and I know that a lot of the the folks that you've talked to have expressed this, but like the baggage of selling being dishonest, manipulative, yucky, gross. For the first year, it felt really hard to reconcile the two. And I did fine, you know, like because I'm a personable person that enjoys art that was able to kind of carry me through. But it wasn't until um, about a year and a half in when we got a really amazing head of sales who helped me and the team to understand that the people we were were the people that we needed to bring to our selling and all of that yucky baggage is not fact. It doesn't have to be. And that the most effective sellers are empathetic and imperfect and creative. That was really for me where the shift happened. You elaborated on this a little bit. Where do you think that baggage comes from with people? Because I experienced this. I've been selling since 2008. I experienced this not when selling to companies, when I sell our programs to individuals. I've actually been going through this in the last six months or so, maybe actually 12 months for as long as we've been selling individual programs where I sell to the rep. There's this weirdness that I feel around making sure I'm like constantly checking myself to make sure I don't feel like I'm being too pushy or pressuring someone to do something, especially with the fact that they might come to me looking up to me because they're consuming my content. So I feel like there's a, almost a position of power or influence that I have that I'm, I think way too overly conscious of because I have nothing but really good intention. I want to help these people. And if I can, I'm totally okay with them. Not like not doing business with them, you know, but I'm just curious for you because I'm asking, asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How did you deal? How did you kind of like work through that? It's such a good question. I mean, so in terms of like where it comes from, I hate to chalk it up to like, Hollywood and the movies or even like the 1980s, but I kind of feel like, and we need Todd Capone on here to to fill us in with, with his sales history. But my sense is that there was genuinely a period of time when consumers did not have access to the kind of information that they do today, obviously, right? And that creates a certain power dynamic And that's a power dynamic where the seller has all the information and that power can be exploited where the buyer is at risk of being manipulated and deceived. And I think for some time, because buyers did not have access to the kind of information that they do, they fell victim to that. And the industry as a whole, that kind of became the standard, I think. This is an oversimplification of sales history, but I think that there's been a shift in large part because buyers do have access to information. And this is in the transparency sale as well, but because there's a certain level of transparency that is the status quo in buying online, as an example, that there's now the expectation that we as human sellers are able to give them that kind of experience that they've come to expect. Because I think the majority of buying now probably happens online and you're dealing with a person when the decision is bigger. In terms of how to remedy that feeling, that's a tricky one. I mean, I really think it comes back to this idea of helping 
like you said, the sense of like genuinely the, having the genuine desire to help and also comes back to how vital it is to give prospects and would-be buyers like autonomy at every stage of the conversation and to position the purpose of the conversation, not to sell them, but to together determine if what you have to offer is a fit for their needs. It's almost like a diagnosis. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I have a lot of questions on it, but I, okay. <laughs> I'm curious, how do you, and this is going to fit really well into this conversation today around, you know, how do we create a sales process and run a sales process? This is very customer centric, you know, but I, how do you think about, because you mentioned basically with transparency sale, what Todd talks about a lot is consumer reviews. And there's this almost bleeding together of B2C selling experiences and what it's like for us as a consumer and what we expect from a B2B selling process to where I'm seeing, having been on both sides of the fence, I see a bleeding together of those kind of things. Is that what you're kind of alluding to is that even in a B2B context, people are still bringing in experiences and baggage that they have from all kinds of salespeople whether they're selling to them as their business or them personally, that kind of thing, whether it's $50 online that I purchase it for, or it's, you know, buying a house or buying a $500,000 enterprise, you know, kind of thing for their business. I think for, for me, it really comes down to like, and this is where you're right, B2C and B2C kind of muddle together is that, you know, no matter what kind of seller you are, if you're a challenger, relationship-based or a lone wolf or whatever, the thing you are in with your prospect is a relationship. And I think that the same like really fundamental needs that human beings have in relationship outside of selling are the ones that we as sellers need to meet in the selling relationship. And I'm talking about like big picture needs, like feeling seen and heard, feeling safe, feeling free. And like that transparency piece for me, one of the reasons that it's so powerful is because I think that it it leads to like feelings of safety and security on steroids. And that that is like just a fundamental need that people have in order to feel confident moving through relationship, be it family, friend, buyer, seller. Yeah, I love that. It's, uh, and not that, because I, I think that, God, we could go off on another tangent here around relationships and sales. Because there's so much on LinkedIn that I see big sales trainers, very popular sales trainers talking about the fact that relationships are really not that important anymore in sales. And that, you know, you don't need to be the person's friend. And like, yeah, I get it. You don't need to be best friends with the person to the point where you go get happy hour with them every week and you call the check in to see how their families. I get that. But to tell me that the relationship is not important, I think of all the sales that I've won and in the last six months and a lot of those started out, I mean, I have guitars here in the background. One of, the, one of them was this guy had a bunch of guitars in the back. We just talked about guitars for 15 minutes. You know, we're not best friends, and I don't talk to him about guitars every week, but we had something that broke the ice, something that we could connect with on a personal level to figure out, like, what's important to this person. And that kind of reduced this friction in this, like, businessy kind of context where we could just be real with each other. I think there's something to that that people completely gloss over where... I see a lot of advice where, hey, when you hop on a sales call, you should just get straight to business. I'm like, well, I don't think so. Why don't you just be a hu- human being and like kind of read the situation? Does this person want to talk, have small talk? 
like entertain a couple of minutes of small talk. It's totally okay to ask people about that stuff. And I, I don't know, what, what's your take on relationships and in sales and all that stuff? Yeah, it's such a good question. So the first thing I'll say is that I feel like rapport is not the same as relationship. And I feel like people are told like that step one of the sales interaction, let's say if you're not someone who jumps right into business, has to be this thing called like quote unquote rapport building. And then that becomes like a tactical tick box, which inevitably falls flat if you are doing it in a way that's like devoid of curiosity, devoid of humanity for the sake of doing this thing called building rapport. So for me, like I had a client who felt really almost like petrified of the step of like building rapport. Like it felt so unnatural for him. And because of that, and because he had trouble like tapping into his humanity in those moments and genuine curiosity, we discovered that the best path for him was to jump straight to business, but in a supremely client-focused way so that he could build relationship throughout the selling conversation, the selling process that would help to carry his sale, you know, to the finish line, should they both determine that it was a fit. So I think the distinction that that's coming up in my head, Jason, is like that thing about the guitars, like that just naturally emerged from you both like connecting and seeing what was in the background and gen, you know, having a genuine desire to spark conversation. I think for it to be a requirement on the sales team, for example, that you notice something in the background and make a comment about it for the sake of this thing called quote unquote building rapport tends to fall pretty flat. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of the art of selling. You know, it's the art of the conversation. It's the art of building the connection. You know, it's, it's the, if I see something on someone's LinkedIn profile and there's no description, but I see they've worked at the company for 10 years and they've progressed through four or five different positions, that's something you could ask a question about that's completely related to the conversation that you're about to have with them. It's like genuine curiosity. You know what I mean? Well, that's the thing. And I feel like curiosity is such an important part of being an effective seller because if you are a genuinely curious person, you're going to be able to find something that feels authentic that you're going to be able to ask about. And that's true of like discovery too, you know, not to jump around, but so many people like have these lists of discovery questions that they have to ask in order to either qualify their prospect or, you know, get the information that they need to know. But if you're leading with a genuine curiosity, like the true spirit of curiosity and really listening, like there's a way to just organically follow that curiosity to get to the bottom of what it is that you need to know. That's a hard thing to train, but I think it's connected somehow to, well, let me back up. Like so often I think, and this is connected to kind of one of the key ways that I coach is that so many people think that selling is like this activity outside of themselves. Like it's a set of skills that are unrelated to who they are and unrelated to what they intuitively know about being a person in the world. So with discovery, like they think it's this other thing outside of getting to know someone, right? Or, or outside of learning about another human being. So they rely on their list, right? And it becomes really like, you feel like you're at the doctor or something, like answering a checklist. Following that approach, it's pretty hard to use discovery to create connection and grow relationship. But if you're able to authentically, and again, this is a hard thing to speak to is specifically how to tap into that. But if you're able to authentically get curious about your prospect circumstances and their state of the union and how what's going on in their business is impacting them, it's much easier to flow from one question to the next. You can leave your list at home. Yeah. I'm just thinking, I love that you drew the personal connection too, because I think about with my friends, 
and a lot of them are, <laughs> you know, do what we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but people that don't do what we do, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you were talking about what they do for work, one of the natural things that you would want to know is, well, hey, what's a day look like for you? Yes. You know what I mean? Like it's one of the natural things. Like yesterday I was doing a sales call. It was a really good sales call. At least I thought it felt good to me. He seemed to be pretty connected. But there's this topic of KPIs that comes up, right? And that's like a question that you get taught in discovery. Ask about the KPI and how they measure this stuff. And that conversation didn't come up. That's not a question I have on my checklist of things to do in a discovery call. You know, I want to figure out what is their goal? What are they trying to accomplish? And I just want to figure out how they measure it because I'm curious. Because if they're going to bring someone in like me, I'm assuming it's to drive some sort of KPI that they're in charge of. And it doesn't matter. The exact question I ask doesn't really actually matter that much if I know what I'm looking for, you know? But hey, you have a framework for this. So I want to, because we've kind of set this up pretty well around this like customer centric type of approach being, I hate saying being more human. I got to figure out a different thing to say because it's, it's, you are human. I don't think you need to be more human. We are humans, you know, but bringing more of your authentic self, I think is what you said. I love that. So you have a framework around this. How do you think about approaching the sales call with your clients and, and them bringing more of them, their authentic selves? into the call and we have an agenda setting framework and all kinds of other stuff. But where do we, where do we start? So I think, and I know empathy is another one of these words that gets overused and turns into a hollow tactic, but I really think, and this is true in the, in the framework that I teach around agendas, like we first, before we open our mouths, before we do anything, need to acknowledge that the prospect is going to be a little wary of us. Like what is their emotional state? Like they're coming into a selling conversation Maybe in their company, things are going well. Maybe they are. Maybe there's pressure for them to change. Change represents the unknown. The unknown equals risk to the primal brain, like risk could be death, right? So there's like, coupled with the fact that the baggage of sales is real and prospects are wary of having conversations with sellers because there's a lack of trust, right? So even if a prospect is coming to you, like enthusiastically wanting to learn about your product, there's going to be some friction there. And I think that our first job as a salesperson needs to be to acknowledge the high possibility that there's some mistrust, some hesitation, some fear, and some worry, either about the change or about how this conversation is going to go. And it's out of that that I've created, you know, in a framework for starting the meeting that is designed to attend to that psychological and emotional state to begin to set the relationship at ease. Do you find that people are uncomfortable with coming to that understanding that, hey, when Jordana and I are on a sales call right now, I need to accept the fact that she's probably weary having never talked to me before and probably having tons of bad interactions with people exactly like me. I need to be comfortable with the fact that she's going to be naturally skeptical. Do you find that that's really uncomfortable for people to just acknowledge that truth and accept it? The response that I usually get is relief because it's like this thing that we all know, but no one's acknowledging. It's kind of like, you know, what, there's, a, there's a workshop that I teach called empathy-based prospecting. And we also start with the acknowledgement that like when we call our prospect, they're probably doing something else. They're definitely not thinking about us. They're probably disappointed that it's, you know, to discover that it's us when they pick up the phone. And one interpretation of those truths could be like, oh no, what a bummer. I've got such a big hill to climb. But the other interpretation is like, oh, that's the facts. Like, this is what we're dealing with here. We've got to know what we're dealing with in order to be able to attend to it. So I think 
the experience that I've had in, in teaching these frameworks is, is sellers are like, oh, good. Like, at least we're acknowledging what is. Now, what do I, what do, I do with it? Yeah. Okay, cool. So what's the framework? <laughs> so the, the framework it, it the, the <laughs> yeah yeah so the framework itself is called it's called disarm and really it is designed to speak both to the prospect's logical part of their brain and their emotional part of the brain which as we know is responsible for the majority of buying decisions and most of the steps in the framework are pretty typical of an agenda right like d desired outcome like why are we here right I, items, what are we going to talk about? S, and I'll outline kind of what, you know, what these are in more detail in a moment, like S, steps. We need to acknowledge that should, you know, should everyone feel good, we're going to be talking about next steps at some point in the conversation, right, to give it forward motion. A, ask. We ask our prospect, what do you want to make sure that we talk about today? All right, what's the most important thing you want to come away from the meeting with in order to feel like the time was well spent? And then R is real talk which is like, hey, you know, I'm a super straight shooter here. So if at any moment this feels either not clear or like not a fit, can I count on you to be straight with me, right? And then M is where you move into the meeting. But it's not the steps themselves, I would say, where the magic happens. It's like the intention that we have when we employ them. So like desired outcome, we have our outcomes, but like, why is the prospect coming to this meeting? What is it that they're hoping to get? So that might be, you know, so my sense of the purpose of this meeting is to get to know one, one another and then to together determine, you know, how I can support you and your team with your training this year, right? Like how I can support you. Mm-hmm. Client focus language. Support is such a, such a cool word to use. And are you just pretty straight up with that? So what, do, Jordana, what do you want to accomplish today? Well, that's the whole thing is that the spirit and the intention of this agenda is that we're really considering what the prospect wants, what they need, why they're showing up, okay? So with the desired outcome, we want to make sure that it's our shared outcome, right? Our our collaborative outcome and not, let's say, our outcome to determine if they're a fit for us, right? So it's really important. We're here to determine if we can support you. The items themselves, you know, so often as sellers, when we talk about an agenda, we'll say, so first, I want to do this then I want to do this, right? It's all about what we want and need. But there's a subtle way to introduce some collaborative language in order to begin to telegraph that this is about serving their needs as well. So first, I thought it could be helpful for us to, from there we can, together we can determine, right? So really infusing the agenda with words that, that speak to us rather than I and the seller's wants and needs. Yeah, and it sounds like the language around us, we support, it's very intentional on your part. Very, yes. And it's also very soft. Like there's nothing assumptive about this agenda. Like it's, I thought it could be helpful too. Like from there, we might be able to. After that, it would be great to hear from you about, right? Because what we don't want our prospect to feel is that this agenda is fixed, right? We want it to feel organic and fluid. And we don't want them to feel like we are dictating the terms and tone of the meeting. I think that last part you said is so important. I catch myself doing this sometimes too, where we get taught these upfront contracts Sandler came up with, right? And yeah, yeah. I hate the word contract, by the way, um, in there, but it's it almost feels like this, I'm going to 
I'm going to control this call. That's what they always tell you, right? You need to control the call as a salesperson. And to all of the points that you made earlier around, you know, use the word autonomy, which I love. And no one wants to be controlled, especially the people that you're selling to. These are typically people in leadership positions that don't have a lot of time. They deal with a lot of other stuff and they have people that they're responsible for and they don't want to be controlled. They want to participate in something together with you. So it's a tough and a good reminder for myself too that you don't have to come in and set the agenda in a way where you're saying, I'm going to learn more about you and I have some questions. And then if it makes sense, I'll share how we might be able to help you. It feels very collaborative. That's the idea because I think, you know, one of the reasons I'm so excited about this agenda is I feel like it's this area or at this moment in the conversation is really un- underexplored and that all too often agendas are about either establishing dominance or just setting expectations about what we will be talking about. But I think there's an opportunity to also telegraph, like, how are we going to be together? What is this conversation going to feel like? And if you've got a prospect coming in with either very big walls up or even very short walls up, the goal is to begin that process of disarmament, you know, as soon as you can, right? Ideally. Yeah. Love it. One quick comment I add to is I think that's a big difference between B2C and B2B sales is that in B2C, sometimes you will sell to people that are not natural leaders. Like they're not turned off by someone that kind of just takes control of what to do and just says, hey, we're going to do this. You never see that in B2B if, with a decision maker ever. At least I haven't. And the people that I work with don't really, I don't really see that as much. Are you saying you don't, you don't see in B2B, you don't see people who are turned off by your taking the lead? No, I see people that are more turned off by a sale, seller trying to control, be too controlling. I see. Yes. And then the B2C, I see people are just more open to it. It seems like that. And I think that some of the folks that you sell to in a B2C setting that are not natural leaders that aren't leading other people doing that kind of thing. I don't know if alpha is the right way to say it. Yeah, like that kind of thing. They're not as opposed to something that's a little bit more controlled and kind of being told what to do almost, not in a bad way. But I don't know, it's just an observation. Well, I I think what's interesting too about the agenda, and I realize we're kind of jumping in and out of the framework, but like even having an agenda, like what does that telegraph to your prospect about you, do you think, Jason? Like just having an agenda at all. Well, especially if you have a VP or C-level person on a call, it's like, hey, I'm not here to waste your time. Like, I understand your time is important. We scheduled 30 minutes together. My time's important. I take this very seriously. Yeah, it's like thoughtfulness, professionalism, like caring about my time, like having a direction. So, you know, having any agenda can help people, I think, to feel a little bit more secure and like they're in really credible and capable hands, which I think maps back to this idea of, feeling safe. But I think part of the magic of this agenda is how deliberate we are with our choice of words and the way that we're actively trying to speak to that emotional part of the brain. Like in with S for next steps, it's not like, and by the end of the call, we'll talk about next steps. It's, and towards the end of the call, if this is feeling like it could be a fit, right? Or if this is feeling good, we'll make sure to talk really concretely about next step, what next steps could look like. Yeah, one question about the items. What are the important items to mention? I know it could be different depending on what you're selling, but what are typical items that you want to make sure that are included? Yeah, good one. So, you know, in a typical discovery call, I think high level, there are usually two items, right? Like first, 
want to learn about you, like what's working well on your team, where they're struggling, what inspired you to talk today, right? Or where, you know, where you're looking to be. So it's like the current state of the union at your organization. In the case of me, let's say selling sales training. And then item number two is usually, well, then we'll talk about me, right? But so often I notice that sellers will say something like, great. And then from there, I'll tell you a little bit about the company or about the history of our company, even worse, right? But it's so much more effective to be like, and then based on everything that you share, if any ideas come to mind, I'll spit them out. And from there, I'll want to speak really specifically about how we support teams of your size or with your needs in accomplishing X, Y, and Z. So even there, the idea isn't you tell me about you and then I'll give you the boilerplate version of us. I'm going to be really paying close attention. And based on what you share, that is going to inform how I speak about my product solution, offering, et cetera. Awesome. And then we sort of talked about the S, the next steps piece, which I think is super important too, because I mean, how many sales calls have you listened to with other people where at the end of in the last five minutes, the prospect says, yeah, go ahead and send me pricing or a proposal or whatever you got. No, it's not the way. And what's nice about this next steps piece is it's like, if you're feeling right, if we're feeling like this is a good fit, we can talk concretely about next steps. And that's positioned not in service of your sale as a seller, but in service of informing you, the prospect, right? Exactly what to expect if we decide that we're going to be moving forward in some capacity, right? Because I think oftentimes too, you know, one of the critiques that I hear from people when they hear that I'm relationship-driven or a human-focused sales coach is that it's all about the relationship and their concern. There's not that forward motion or that structure or next structure to support momentum and decision. And what's so important about this agenda is, yes, it's building the relationship and you know, telegraphing these signals of credibility and trust and safety and freedom while also making very clear that there's a destination. And that destination is decision, whatever the decision might be. Do you find that the focus on the relationship allows you to actually do more of this stuff in a way that feels like they want to participate in anyways? Well, like, you know, it's funny, and this is going to sound weird, but I like to give prospects the gift of feeling seen and heard for the duration of our interaction together. And what I mean by that is like, it's such a rare feeling to have an interaction where people or someone comes away feeling like, oh, that person really saw me. So I think when I set that intention, along with a lot of lists, like curiosity driven listening so that I can really make a determination, like, am I the trainer for this company in my example? Like the experience is going to be a good one for the prospect regardless. Yeah. That seen and heard piece is so important because when you think about the typical person, they may not even experience much of that in their personal life. That's the thing. Most people don't. And then think about if you're selling to a director or VPC level, they might not even have very many people in their company where they feel seen and heard either. So someone's boss potentially, or if they are the boss, not having a peer group that they can talk to that actually understands them. And you should be getting a lot of this. And for if you're listening, I'm nodding my head. You should be getting a lot of that during a sales call if you're doing a good job where people are like, yeah, that's totally right. You nailed it. Yeah, you totally captured how, how, what I want here. You know, if you're not getting a lot of that type of language, you're probably not doing a very good job of really seeing 
understanding the person, letting them know that you understand them and really nailing it. Right. Well, it's funny. I was, I was doing a um, workshop the other day on objection handling and part of the framework that I teach involves asking a lot of questions to really understand like what's going on at the company. And one of the participants was like, yeah, but like, is the prospect going to be on to what we're doing? Like, are they to this technique? And I'm like, well, what's the technique? And she's like, well, just ask, you know, asking a lot, a lot of questions. And it's like, well, the purpose of asking questions is to understand so that we can tackle the objection and respond to it in a way that's going to be really reflective of what is actually going on. And in absence of understanding that we're not going to be able to respond effectively. Now, of course, it's also helpful for our sale too, potentially, right? Because if we're able to meet them where they are and give them an explanation that makes sense, maybe we'll move forward. But separate from that, I brought that idea up to her of like, so few people have the experience in the world in their relationships of feeling seen and heard separate from our handling of objections. If we can give them that experience, what a friggin' gift. Yeah. And what prospect is going to have an objection to knowing the technique of, oh, you're trying to make me feel seen and heard? Yes. Exactly. Versus, oh, you're using those templated questions that you saw in this book that are supposed to make me feel a certain way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. It's like, who doesn't want to feel seen and heard? That's that. I don't care if people know that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do. And that's sort of the point with this agenda, too, is that you're letting them know what the goal of this call is, you know? Yeah. And that you're going to be listening all along the way and that what they tell you is going to shape the direction of the call. Love it. What is the, uh, can you tell us more about the A? Yeah. So the A is so important. So, so often after a seller delivers an agenda, they'll say, does that sound good? Or like, how does that sound? Or does that make sense? Right. But the A ask is another opportunity to really collaborate with the prospect and show them that their perspective matters by asking them the open-ended what else do you want to make sure we talk about? Or what do you want to come away from our time together with in order to feel like this was really well spent, right? How does what you care about, like how can what you care about really shape the direction of this meeting? Now, we wouldn't ask, you know, that last question, but that's the kind of spirit in which I kind of bring to that ask step. And sometimes the prospect will say, no, everything you outlined sounds good. But then sometimes just with that simple open-ended question, they're going to tell you something that's on their mind that can really allow you to shape the conversation, the, you know, the direction of the conversation so that it's working. I love this question because I don't know if you've ever felt this, but being on the receiving end of sales calls, sometimes I am reluctant, uh, reluctant out of laziness to say, I want to make sure we cover this, this, and this. If the person doesn't ask me, I'm like, oh God, it feels like too much work at this point to just say, I, I need to cover this, this, and this. And I've already kind of decided at that point that I'm not really going to tune in much to this call if they don't ask me what I want to talk about. It's an invitation to participate. And that too, like getting that early contribution, if you get it, I mean, I have sellers who are like, oh my God, I asked that question and they told me what mattered to them in a way that would have taken me five, six, seven discovery questions in, but I knew right away at the top of the meeting and that that changed the dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Our real talk. You had, a, you had some really cool things that you said here that I'm uh, anxious to hear again. <laughs> I mean, there's so many ways to do this. And this is a really scary step for sellers, especially those who are taught to sell assumptively. For me, this is like, quote unquote, autonomous selling, right? Where you're like, look, I'm a super straight shooter here. So if at any moment, this feels unclear, not what you were hoping for, 
sometimes I like to throw in some humor and I'll say something like, or the very worst idea ever or the worst product ever. Like, do I have your word? Do be straight with me? Or can I count on you to be straight with me? Right. Yeah. And that's kind of like an upfront contract, I guess, you know? Yeah. I love this too. I, another thing I say too is, yeah. uh, what do you and say? you won't hurt my feelings. Yeah. That's so good. Right. Yeah. I'm curious your take on this too. My thoughts on rejection are that I think it's almost as hard to reject other people, maybe worse for some people than it is to be in the receiving end of rejection. So a lot of prospects, they don't want, if they think your product sucks, they, most of them don't really want to tell you that. Or if they think that you're talking about something that's not relevant to them, a lot of people, unless they're like hardcore drivers, they won't say anything because they, they don't want to, they don't want to shoot you down. No. What do you, what do you think? I totally, I totally, totally agree. And it's like, sometimes I help sellers get into this headspace where it's like, have you ever had to tell your friend or colleague that something that they did or said upset you? And they're like, oh yeah. And I'm like, what were those accompanying feelings? Nervousness, hesitation, worry. I didn't want to have the conversation, right? Like those are some of the same feelings that our prospects have when having to raise an objection. It's often easier to ghost than just give it to us straight. And then you know, there goes two, three weeks of, of wasted follow-up, right? So if you're able to make that kind of pact up front, it gives you permission to refer to it really at any point in the conversation, even when you sense hesitation, like, hey, remember early on in the conversation, we made a pact, <laughs> what's going on in there, right? Yeah. And then it's like, there's that permission to just be like, yeah, this is really not for us. You know, what you did there is so clutch too, because it almost, it's to those points in the TV shows and the movies where they break the fourth wall. Right. Yeah. Where you kind of break out of the sales call for a second. You're like, hey, remember what we talked about? Remember, we're we're two humans here. We can totally be real with yes. each other. And you're not going to hurt my feelings if something feels a little weird or, or uneasy, but I sense some hesitation. Every time I've done that, the person's been super open too. Every single time. It's like bringing the elephant to the, into the room. It's just like such a relief for everyone. So it's like, just because you make that packed up front, doesn't necessarily mean or guarantee they're going to feel comfortable speaking up during, you know, if they're feeling hesitant during the conversation, but you can probe them or prompt them to or remind them. And you've totally earned yourself permission at the front if they say, yeah, I'll be straight with you. And sometimes, you know, once they make the commitment, I'll say, and if, you know, as we're talking, I realize like I'm not the best trainer for you or what you're needing is not in my wheelhouse. I'll let you know too, and we'll be happy to make a recommendation. And that just depressurizes the entire interaction. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Love it. And then lastly, move. Yeah, move on. Get into the meeting. That's it. Proceed into the meeting. That's right. And the, so the goal here, like, look, like you can't in 60 seconds, like establish rich, deep relationship right away. Right. But what you can do is begin to plant the seeds and to telegraph the kind of interaction that this is going to be, right? Both to allay any fears that they have, like they don't know what's going to be discussed but also like making sure that they know the rules of engagement, right? That this is going to be a collaboration, a dialogue, a place where whatever they are feeling, you know, whether it's yes, we want to buy, no, we sure as hell don't, or maybe later is welcome in the conversation. Yeah. I want to highlight something you said there around rules of engagement too, because there's this book called The Art of Gathering. And my wife is, she's the one that read it. She's very into hosting. Oh, cool. She's very good host. So she's Korean and it's kind of a part of their culture too, to be a good host when people come over. So the part in that book that Sarah told me about that I think is totally relevant here is part of being a good host is establishing a couple quick ground rules, right? To make it more comfortable for people. So like when I do trainings 
the very first call that I do with a company, I say, hey, there's two ground rules. You know, one, I need you to participate. But two, I'm going to say things during this training that you're going to disagree with, and that's okay. And I'd like for you to tell me if you think that something won't work. Because I don't sell what you sell. I don't sell to the same people. And I'm not going to pretend I know how to do your job better. And I see this huge sense of relief because I always look at the people and there, there's always this sense of relief. And I've never thought of it quite like this, but in a sales call, basically when you do this type of agenda setting, you're just being a good host. That is such a good way to think about it. That is exactly right. Especially with, okay, I got another question for you around this too. What if you're doing a call with multiple people on the call? Do you do anything differently if there's, hey, VP of sales is bringing on their director of sales and one of their sales managers onto a call? Do you think about the agenda setting any differently if there's multiple people on the call? Yeah. So I think one really good thing to do is to move your ask a little bit further down. So like before you dive into the meeting, I usually like to get the main stakeholder to say why they brought everybody together and to go around and say, you know, I I imagine that we all have, like we all have different amounts of information about, you know, what this is going to be and, and how we're thinking about this for your team. Like, it'd be great just to hear from all of you individually. Like, what do you really want to come away from this time together having talked about? Or what's, you know, why are you here? What do you feel like you need to know in order to feel like this time was well spent? And then kind of go round robin, right? And then once you've gathered all of that, that becomes a really great touch tone to allow you to shape the meeting so that let's say, you know, if this is a meeting where you're, you know, pitching or demoing, you're able to bring back really relevant be it features and functionality, whatever, right back to what you learn matters most to your participants. Here's the thing, like there's no time limit on when you can ask a great question in a selling interaction. And what I mean by that is like, so often I find sellers are like, shoot, I didn't find this out in discovery. How do I have any way of knowing if this feature or whatever I'm going to bring up is relevant to them? I didn't find out. Like it's never too late to ask, right? So maybe you don't have the complete compass from your ask and your agenda, let's say, of what really matters to your prospect. But before you dive into a specific you know, aspect of the product or service, that's a great opportunity to say, you know, I was just about to talk about this, but before I do, how is this working on your team now, right? How important is this? And if they say not at all, that's a great trigger for you to just you know, skip past that and go on to the next thing. So you actually sort of answered part of my question actually was okay on the next call, if that's a demo and you're selling software, or maybe it's some sort of presentation if you're selling services. Yeah. How do you think about agenda setting in those calls? That's a great question. So I usually like the first agenda item to be a summary of what we learned in the previous meeting and what matters to them, right? Do you send an email after that first call with kind of recap of the of the call? Is that what you're kind of using or do you give anything to the prospect? So after the first discovery call, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that it's funny. I don't have a, a set template for what those follow-ups look like, but I think that it's really important to call out in any follow-up, like the things that you learn Matt, that matter most to them, right? Yeah. And then refer back to that in, you know, in your second meeting agenda, because what that telegraphs to them is that the basis of this meeting and all following discussion is going to rest on their priorities, right? Their wants, their needs. Yeah. Love it. This is killer. I learned a lot. (laughs) I I love the, uh, your phrasing, the supportive language. And I think that this is, oh man, I think of how, and I think this is 
maybe a bit of a machismo, like macho man kind of thinking where people come in and they don't think in a collaborative way. And um, because of the way that we're taught, because typically, I don't know, I find that a lot of like driver male is going to, I don't know if this sounds sexist or not, because it's against my own, uh, <laughs> my own, uh, but, but a lot of it's like the, the high driver type uh, men that have been doing sales for 20, 30 years plus, they kind of grew up in this style of selling and the way they teach, you know, the younger folks come in and it's like, it's a very aggressive, you know, style where you have to control, you know, the sale. And what you're doing is so much the opposite of that. That's my big takeaway is this supportive, using more we, our, we can figure this out together type of language versus coming in and talking about what you want to talk about. You know, that was, that was sort of my big takeaway. The reason for this meeting is in support of our prospects, wants and needs, goals, challenges, problems, right? So the sooner we can make that known, and of course we need to do a good enough job referring back to their wants and needs throughout, the better and more open usually the selling conversation will be. Yeah. One other thing I want to point out too is I I like the collaborative nature of this and it doesn't feel like you're not going in and being a control freak, but you're not doing the opposite of that and being completely subservient to the prospect either. This is coming in as a peer. You know, hey, we're an equal playing field here. And let's establish together and collaborate on this, which I think is important because a lot of people have a fear of being too subservient, which I don't think is a good place to be in either, you know, where they, you feel like they're just bossing you around the entire time. That's, that's not what we're here to do either in sales. Well, it's a subtle difference. It's like, okay, you don't want to be the leader, but at least be the guide. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. This has been great, Jordana. Where, where can people go to connect with you, learn more about you and what you have going on? Yeah. So LinkedIn is the place. That's where everything happens. There's also spring training with two eyes.com. Cool. So make sure to check that out in the show notes and you post a lot of great content on LinkedIn. So I'd recommend checking that out too. Thank you, Jason. Thanks. Uh, that was a fun one. One of the big things that I got from this is this, this collaborative mindset. When you think about going into a sales call, if you think about how can I spend this time collaborating with my prospect, almost like those, uh, <laughs> those projects we did in high school and college where you're working in a team to finish something, if you can think about less I'm selling to this person and, and almost less how can I help this person, if you think more how can I collaborate with this individual, how can we create something really cool together during this call that's gonna get them excited to collaborate on the next call. And that call is gonna get them excited to bring that back to their team so we can all collaborate together. That's a really, really interesting mindset shift that I got from this. So I appreciate you tuning into the podcast. One thing that would really help before you take off is make sure to subscribe. I'd love it if you leave an honest review on the podcast as well. Helps us grow the show, helps us keep the free content coming, and helps us bring on guests uh, like Jordana continue getting on those folks. So thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.